We've been, this semester, traversing what we've called the streams of mercy of the book of Romans. And we made it through the first half of Romans chapter 5, and we pick up tonight uh, in the first half of Romans chapter 6. And if you remember, if you've been with us or if you haven't, what we've found that in this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he wanted to let them know that he's got big news that he's not ashamed of, of what it means to be right with God. That there is in the gospel a righteousness from God, a righteousness revealed and a righteousness to be received. And he really, really, really wants us to get this. And so he's been talking about grace over and over and over and over again. And just when you think he's going to turn a corner, guess what? He talks about it again. And that's where we are tonight. So like I said, I was on the, the Mexico trip last week. And something when you go on, these, uh, on, on road trips or, or big trips like this with a group of people, inevitably... Uh, those games come up, and I have no idea what to categorize them as other than, like, inside knowledge games. Basically, where the rules of the parameter of the game make no common sense whatsoever, and so somebody just starts playing it in front of you, and you're supposed to figure out how to play it as well. And it's so frustrating because people around you know the rules, and so they get the answers. And I would give you a concrete example, but if I did, you'd spend the rest of the next 20, 25 minutes trying to figure out the rules. So I'm just going to make up one. The games usually go something like this. If red is blue and green is orange, what is the square root of purple? And you're sitting there going, blah, blah, blah. And then finally somebody goes, five. And the person goes, right, it is five. And you're going, What? And you feel like an idiot, and like everybody around the table is like, yep, it's five. And you're like, that makes no sense. And everybody's like, ha, ha, ha. And then you're like, no, ha, 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 this joke is stupid. And you walk away. Anyway. But you have no idea what's going on. And then there comes that point where you, like, you listen to the game long enough, and you're like, wait, 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 I got it figured out. Do another one. And so they do another one. And somebody says an answer, and you're like, nope, I don't got it. I don't have it. <laughs> Thought I did. Paul... When you read through Romans, I, I think why this is one of the most powerful letters in the New Testament, why uh, it's uh, so endearing to so many people, why people, if they want to get like, back into the quiet times or whatever, they go to Romans, right? It's the default letter. Because Paul really wants us to get this grace thing. It's so big and it's so good. He really wants us to get it because it's the gospel, right? And what Paul knows about us is that there comes times in our lives, especially us Christians, right, where we think, I finally got the grace thing. And then it's like, nope, I don't got it. I missed it. I lost it. Where'd it go? I got to get it back. How, what happened, right? And in chapter 6, at the beginning of this chapter, Paul kind of anticipates a misunderstanding. Whether the misunderstanding is willful or whether it's just by consequence of, of learning about grace. Basically, the misunderstanding... That Paul anticipates is this. Okay, so I've got all of this sin, and God has all of this grace. That's a, that seems like a pretty good match, right? So, like, I just keep my sin, and God keeps his grace. I keep sinning, and God just keeps gracing, and it's just awesome, right? And Paul says not exactly, right? You look at Paul's answer there at the beginning of chapter 6. He says, no, 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 you've got to understand grace works. Grace 
works. It's not about your works, but grace works. It does something. It changes us. It does not leave us unchanged. And you will either live free in light of this truth, or you will die hard, swimming upstream against it. So how does Paul answer this? Let's read here, Romans chapter 6. Let's read the first 14 verses. What shall we say then? Are we to sin, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, too, might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray before we look into this. Father, my great comfort tonight, uh, despite the cloudiness of my hearing and even my thought, is that your word is living and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So, Father, though I will speak, my prayer for myself and for all of us is that you would speak, that you would speak words of truth and words of life, that you would write, write the truths of your grace indelibly upon our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, grace. Paul really wants us to understand this. Three things, the connection, the transformation, and the litmus test. First, the connection, okay? The connection. What is the connection? What is the connection that Paul is trying to get here? And two ways I want to come at this. The first thing is, why does he anticipate the question? What's the connection to the question itself? Why does he anticipate this question here in verse 1? Well, actually, if you go back to verse 20 of chapter 5, something interesting Paul says. He says when he's, when he's talking about... Um, how just like how sin came into the world through Adam, righteousness has now come through Jesus, right? Um, One thing he says in, in chapter five, verse 20, he says, where sin increased, 
Grace abounded all the more. And the literal Greek word there is superabounded. For all the increase of sin, grace superabounded. Right? For all the sin, there was more grace. And so he says this is the truth of the gospel. And he says, so does that mean that we should just keep sinning so that grace would abound? Think about all that Paul said to this point. And you can read Romans for yourself if you never have. But all, here's just a rough summary of what he said to this point. You and I need a righteousness to be right with God. All that we have in ourselves, though, is unrighteousness. So we're kind of up a creek. By our ungodliness, we suppress the truth. By our self-righteousness, we judge ourselves and judge others. No one is righteous. No one is good. No, not one, he says at the beginning of Romans chapter 3. And then in the second half of Romans chapter 3, he says, But God now has made a righteousness available to us apart from the law, apart from works. Through faith, by grace, In Jesus Christ, he covers our unrighteousness with a perfect righteousness of Jesus. He righteouses the unrighteous. He justifies the ungodly. And he does it without condition. But that's it. And he does it without condition. I want that to sit because if... If you think about everything Paul has said to this point, if you really think of the gospel, which, by the way, he made the point in verse 16 of the very opening of the letter to say that he wasn't ashamed of it. Because he knows there's a temptation to say, wait, without, there's some condition, right? Like, we got to do something, right? And here it is. It makes us nervous to leave it there. We just keep waiting for Paul to tell us, okay, but yeah, but what do we need to do, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones is a popular uh, preacher in Britain uh, 50-ish years ago, not too long ago. Uh, And one thing he used to say about the gospel is, you know that you're really preaching the gospel if people are tempted to believe that they do not have to do anything. You know that you're really preaching the gospel or you actually you're not preaching the gospel unless people are tempted to believe that they don't have to do anything. Think about this for yourself. If a good friend or a non-believer, if they stopped you just right now tonight and said, okay, look, what is up with this Christian thing? Just what is it? What is, what is this gospel thing? What is it? I want you to think. How far into it could you get before you said something to the effect of, and we need to try to do his will? Or we need to try to obey him. We need to try to follow How far could you get into the gospel without using the word try? This is it. Paul understood that God's grace was so big and so good that it would be possible to believe that we do not do anything. And he's okay with it. He's okay with that because it is that big and because it is that good and because there's nothing you can do to get it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. And that's it because it's grace and that's it. So stop trying to qualify it. Stop trying to qualify it for other people. Stop trying to qualify it For yourself. It's grace. That's what makes it grace. Right? 
That's why he anticipates the question. But the second thing is, what is it? Okay, I, okay, I get that, Paul. But what is the connection to my life? What is the connection to my life? How is it that Paul answers the question with such a strong and sure answer? By no means. Okay, Paul, how do you get there? How does Paul know that what Jesus has done for me will necessarily produce something in me? How does Paul know that when I've spent years and I don't even think I know that yet? How does Paul know that? Look at the language he uses in these first verses of chapter 6. It says we're baptized into Christ Jesus. We're baptized into his death. We're buried with him. In the clincher, verse 5, he says we're united with him in his death. And we're united with him in his resurrection. What is the connection to my life? Here it is, a big, nice theological term for you. Union with Christ. That is Paul's answer. Union with Christ. For those who have been justified, there is such a profound connection with Jesus that it is true to say that stuff that happened to him is equally true of you. That's what Paul's saying. That we are not just attached to Jesus and what he did. We're not just associated with Jesus and what he did. No, we're in him. Not only are we in him, but he is in us. That what happened to him happened to us. What is true of him is true of us. He makes no qualifications. He says, that is the fact. Like Uncle Si says, that's the fact, Jack. I think he says that. I may have just made that up. Duck Dynasty, anyone? No? All right. (laughs) Duck Dynasty to Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump, I hope you've seen this movie. We need to do a movie night if you haven't. Forrest Gump, amazing movie, Tom Hanks in the 90s. Forrest Gump is just larger than life character, though he's kind of a simple-minded guy from Greenbow, Alabama. End of the movie, uh, this movie Forrest Gump, Forrest uh, and his childhood friend and the love of his life, Jenny, are finally reunited. They've both, throughout the movie, they've both had very eventful lives. Forrest, though highly unlikely, has had just a very, uh, there's been a lot of twists and turns through Vietnam and other things, but he's ended up having a very successful life. But Jenny, like her childhood, has lived a life that has been rough and scarred. And at the end of the movie, they're finally together. And Forrest has been in love with her the whole, uh, his whole life. And Jenny's just always kind of been there. And she asks Forrest, she says this, were you scared in Vietnam? This is what Forrest says to her. He says, yes, I, I won't do the voice. If you've never heard the voice, you should go Google it. Yes, well, I don't know. Um, I said I wasn't going to do it. Sorry. This is what he says. He says, yes, well, I don't know. Sometimes it would stop raining long enough for the stars to come out. And then it was nice. It was like just before the sun goes to bed down on the bayou. There was always a million sparkles on the water like that mountain lake. It was so clear, Jenny. It looked like there were two skies, one on top of the other. And then in the desert when the sun comes up, I couldn't tell where heaven stopped and the earth began. It was so beautiful. To which Jenny says, I wish I could have been there with you. Without missing a beat, Forrest says, you were. You were. You watched that moment and you know exactly what he meant. 
He's telling her in that moment, my love is such for you that everything I've been through, you've been right there with me the entire time. How would you describe union with Christ? The Bible uses a bunch of different analogies. Jesus says that he's the vine and we're the branches, right? We get all our life and sustenance from him, right? Paul says he's the head of the church and we are the body, right? An interesting analogy. Uh, Paul also says that he's the groom and we, his people, the, the church, are the bride, right? And as the two become one flesh, so is the union between Jesus and his bride, his people, the church, right? And you're like, okay, like cool analogies, but I still don't really understand what that means. It's profound, but it's real. Paul's saying that the good news of the gospel of justification is that it's not just some cold pronouncement. It's not just like, oh, congratulations, you got out of hell. See you later. It's actually a deeply personal, profound, and mystical union of hearts. Ours to his and his to ours. And it results in this exchange of identities that what can be said to be true of Jesus can be said to be true of his people. How? Because what was true of us, our sin, became true of him. And he died. But we died with him. That's how real it is. But the thing about death in the gospel is that it leads to resurrection. The connection is our union with Christ. Second one, though, is what about the transformation? What does it do in my life? What happens? What am I supposed to see? We're all dying to know that, right? The transformation, what actually happens? Should we sin that we get or see or experience more grace? Paul says emphatically, by no means. How can we live in something that we've died to? That's Paul's answer. What does Paul mean that we've died to sin? What does that mean? Well, he can't mean that we no longer want to sin, okay? Because the best among us, our experience tells us that's not the case. But also, if that were the case, he wouldn't have to say in verse 12 and 13, hey, don't sin anymore. If we didn't want to, he wouldn't have to tell us to do that. It also can't mean that we're not supposed to sin, uh, because one, that's pretty self-evident. But two, uh, that doesn't seem to go far enough with uh, what Paul is saying here. What is Paul saying? What actually happens if I died with Christ and if I now live because he lives, what does that mean? Two things. The first one is this. We are not, if we are in Christ, we are not who we once were. If we are in Christ, if we are justified, if we are right and beautiful and loved in God's sight, we are not what or who we once were. It's a fact. Paul says we were united with him in his death. Something about us died when Jesus died. Our old self, he says there, our old self was crucified that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What is it? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Maybe you've heard this before and, um, but, and, and maybe it sounds trite, but listen to it. Paul says something interesting in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
Think about this for a second. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You got to get this. It's not, you might become a new creation. It's not, hey, this is what we should be striving for to be new creations. No, if you are in Christ, you are something new. You are no longer what you used to be. Doesn't matter how you feel, doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you keep on doing, you are new if you are in Christ. You're a new creation. You have been made into something if you're in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. For all those who are in Christ who are justified by His grace as a gift. It's not some spiritual higher plane that we're all supposed to be trying to get up to. No, if you believe this is true of you, all of us, one of my favorite illustrations about this is St. Augustine. Uh, if you haven't heard of him, he's awesome. He was a fourth, uh, fourth and fifth century church father. Um, he's still towering influence on Western Christianity and philosophy. Um, for all his wonderful brains and his philosophy, I think he's such a towering figure in church history because he understood grace. He understood grace. Why did he understand grace? One reason was because he was an utter pagan because before he became a Christian. And specifically, uh, he was very sexually promiscuous and lustful with food, with sex, with anything. He says this himself in his confessions. After his conversion, one day he was making his way through the crowd in town. And one of his former mistresses saw him. And they passed each other by. And she came after him saying, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. To which he finally turned around and he looked her in the face and he said, yes, but it is not I. He got it. <laughs> he was no longer who he used to be. He's not saying he didn't want it, not saying he didn't struggle with it. But it wasn't him because he's in Christ. We are not who we once were. But the second thing is this. Sin for the Christian is not what it once was. We are not who we once were, but sin to the Christian for the Christian is not what it once was. Look at verse 6. The body of sin brought to nothing. We're no longer enslaved to it. Verse 7. The one who's died to sin has been set free from it. Verse 11. We are dead to sin. How in the world does that happen? Read with me verses 9 through 11 again. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Sin is not for the Christian what it once was because we have died to it. He'll go on in the latter half of chapter 6 to say, we are no longer enslaved. It is not our slave any longer. We're actually slaves to righteousness now. And one of my favorite illustrations, this is actually an illustration that Jesus gives. In John chapter 3, one of the most interesting interactions that Jesus ever had with a person is Nicodemus, the Pharisee who came to him by night. In John chapter 3, 
And there, John, uh, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about transformation uh, as well, talking more specifically about Holy Spirit regeneration, new birth transformation. And Nicodemus is absolutely clueless. He's saying, what in the world am I supposed to do with that, proving that he missed the whole point. And so to drive the point home, in John 3, verses 14 and 15, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's one of those morbid Old Testament stories that you skip over when you're reading to your children in the Old Testament because you don't want them to have nightmares until they're 12. This is how the story goes. I should have written, I usually, I think it's Numbers. I don't even want to venture again. Numbers 9? I usually know that reference. It's in Numbers. Take my word for it. I'm a pastor. Anyway, serpents are bad enough. Fiery serpents are worse. And they're biting people and people are dying. This is the just consequence of their sin, right? And so Moses intercedes for them as he always does. And God relents and he says, okay, Moses, I want you to take a bronze serpent, and I want you to wrap it around the pole, and I want you to lift that bronze serpent up in the midst of the camp, and everyone who looks upon that bronze serpent will be healed. If you connect to the dots of the story, what they had to do was they had to look upon the very thing that was killing them to be saved. And Jesus says... Just like that, I've got to be lifted up. Clearly talking about the cross, right? You take your deepest, darkest, most sinister thought, deed, or desire. I don't care what it is. What Jesus is telling you is that if you are in him, that was put to to death on the cross because it was put on him and God killed him for it. He killed that sin. And so what that means is that there is no way, there is no way that that sin could ever kill you. Doesn't mean you don't struggle with it. Doesn't mean you don't feel the pain, pain of it, or the shame of it, or the guilt of it. Doesn't mean you don't feel those things. But it does mean it cannot kill you because it already killed him. For the justified in Christ, sin is not what it once was. Doesn't mean it's not still there. Doesn't mean we do not struggle with and against it. But it does mean that we cannot live in it. We cannot swim in it. We cannot breathe its air any longer because we do not belong to it. We belong to another. Because we died to it in Christ. And what the whole thing is saying, get this again, that as sure as he died, as sure as his body was hung on a cross and laid in a tomb, and then on the third day, that tomb was empty, as sure as that historical fact, you live a new life.
You are not who you once were, and sin is not what it once was, because we live as those who have been brought, Paul says, from death to life. Though I die, yet shall I live. Sound familiar? Jesus said it. We can say it too. The transformation, it actually begins to do something in us. Last thing here quickly. What's the litmus test? Got a SCOTUS uh, appointment coming up either by the end of this president's term or the next whatever. I don't care about arguing about that. Shouldn't have even brought it up. Everybody go tweet about it in rage. Yeah. Um, joke, political joke. Thanks. Awesome. SCOTUS, Supreme Court, anybody? Okay. No more. Um, you'll hear probably as we, uh, whenever we appoint a new Supreme Court justice, litmus test, right? There's those issues, those singular issues, which however that um, recommendation falls on that issue, liberals and conservatives know how they're going to vote for him, right? Uh, women's rights um, to choose, gay marriage, gun rights, you name it, right? However you fall on that, we know. What is the litmus test for the Christian? How is it? This being in Christ sounds amazing. But I just don't know. What's the litmus test? It's pretty amazingly simple. Read verse 14. Verse 14 is not a command. It's a statement of fact. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. There it is again. What's the litmus test? You're either under law or under grace. In other words, you're either the old you or you're the new you. You're either hung up beaten down, called on your sin daily by what you ought to do, what you haven't done, what you used to do, what you sometimes still do, and it just beats you over the head until it beats you into the ground. That's law. It's slavery. Or you live in the light of what's been done. How in the world do we do that? Again, pretty amazingly simple. Look at verse 11. All these things Jesus did. And so what are we supposed to do? Verse 11. So you also must do what? (laughs) Consider. What? You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That same word, consider, is the same word when we read read that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. It was considered as righteousness for him. It was counted, credited, reckoned, uh, considered righteousness. So what Paul is asking is, how do you count yourself? When it comes between you, your relationship with God, how do you do the math? How does it add up? How do you count? Do you use the law or do you use grace? Because what Paul is trying to say here is because of what Jesus did, because of who Jesus is, because the fact that Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, and Jesus was raised again, it doesn't matter how you feel. If you are in Him, God counts you as righteous. The old you died, the new you rose, and the new you isn't enslaved to sin anymore, whether you feel it or not. Consider. 
Jesus. Quoted this movie already once this semester, but I'll do it again. The latest Rocky movie, Creed. Great movie. Adonis Johnson, the illegitimate son of the greatest boxing champion ever. Um, Apollo Creed. He's caught in this in-between. He wants to forge his own path as a boxer, but he also wants to tap into whatever it is his father's legacy left him. And so finally one day his girlfriend asks him point blank, why won't you take his name? This is what he says. He says, I'm afraid of taking on the name and losing. To which his girlfriend says, you're Apollo Creed's son. It's your name. Take it. I love that. How do you count yourself? Paul says, count this way. Not by what you've done, not by how you're doing, not by how you feel, but by who he is and what he's done. Because what's true of him is true of you. Because you're in Christ. Even after you become a Christian, right? You believe, uh, it's easy sometimes for us to believe that we can come to Jesus as we are, that he accepts us, he loves us, he forgives us as we are. But we are so burdened by the fear of staying who we are. And this is what Paul's saying. Because of grace, that's not possible. It's not possible. The grace that saves is the grace that will change you. That's it. We just sang it. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your glorious grace that you know us, that you accept us, and that you love us as you accept and love your own Son. Father, we don't feel that a lot of the time. We feel the old self. We feel the old sin. We feel all the old stuff. You felt it too. And you hung on a cross for it. And you put it to death once and for all. We want to believe that. We pray that you would at least begin to help us tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.